Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. As the government increases permitted development rights to allow more kinds of buildings to be converted into flats without planning permission, we've been concerned about the quality of flats that have been created for some time under this policy. Since 2013, rooms the size of a limousine have been created, some of them without windows, and are now housing families. We haven't been alone in that concern. And with the government's announcement to increase rights, they also released a paper that was commissioned by the Ministry for Housing and Communities and Local Government to look at the legacy of permitted development. And that paper said that it'd been pretty bad so far. So what a surprise that the paper has been released on the same day as an announcement that shops and buildings can now be extended to create more flats under permitted development without planning and also without the introduction of space standards. I decided to speak to the author of that paper to find out how he's feeling about uh, some of those changes having come through and about what he found having looked into many of the permitted development projects that have been taking place across the UK or across England anyway. So his name is Dr. Ben Clifford and he is um, a lecturer at the Bartlett School of Planning. So you're going to hear from him now. I'm Ben Clifford. I'm an associate professor uh, at the Bartlett School of Planning at UCL. So I, I teach and research planning, specialising in, in planning reform in the UK. Um, and I was the, the lead uh, for the government report on the quality of housing delivered through permitted development, which was published last week. So... We've been writing about permitted development, about the quality of the, the homes created. What did you find in, in your report, which I think is the most comprehensive report that's, that's been done in recent years? Yeah, so we, we um, looked at, we visited 639 buildings, um, looking at office to residential, uh, retail to residential, light industrial to residential, storage to residential. Um, so we, we you know, had a great quantity of data there and, and we found in some areas um, such as sort of access to services or, or energy performance that there wasn't much difference between development delivered through permitted development and similar sort of changes use which had come through full planning permission but in in some areas that are really quite impactful on people's quality of lives there, there were dramatic differences and so if we think about if we think about uh, the arrangement of, of windows natural light into the dwellings access to, to outdoor space, uh, balconies, um, or if they're located in the middle of industrial estates, uh, these were all far worse in the permitted development compared to the planning permission units. And so that led us to, to sort of conclude that overall, that the quality of life, uh, the health and well-being of residents of these units was, was likely to be adversely affected. So you did this huge amount of work. You, you had the report ready to go. Um, and it, it was kind of delayed in coming out, if I'm right to say. It took, it took a while for it to be announced. And at the, on the same day that your report comes out, they announced that they're expanding them. How, how is that for you? Yeah, so we, we, we commissioned last year, did, did a huge amount of work and, and submitted in January um, to, to ministers uh, and then had a bit of a wait. Uh, and then, as you said, the, the report was published the very same day that the government announced these new permitted development rights in England to, to build upwards, to, to demolish and rebuild, um, which 
slightly perhaps goes against some of some of the findings of the report. I, I wasn't entirely surprised. I think there's uh, a sort of approach from this government that, that does view planning as, as a barrier. And, and so I, I never perhaps was naive enough to think they'd just abandon permitted development as, as an approach. Um, but at the same time, there didn't seem to be full sort of acknowledgement of, of some of the issues we'd found, particularly around space standards. And they did make one alteration, which is that they specified that the future ones should include windows uh, into the dwellings, which um, which suggests that they could have perhaps brought in other things as well, such as a minimum space or, you know, it, it's not like they can completely, um, is there any other points of regulation that they introduced that that you think is, is of note? Um, so the, the, the adequate natural light in, into all the habitable rooms, uh, which applies for, for the existing permitted dwelling rights and the new ones that they introduced, uh, I think is a fairly significant um, thing. We found, I mean, we only found 10 units out of 3,000 that we looked at with no window at all. But actually, I think people would be shocked that it's been possible for the last seven years in England to even build any housing with no window. But there was a much larger portion that, that had really poor natural light. So you know, some of the floor plans would look at, they, they had these sort of strange uh, dog leg shaped units, you know, really contrived layouts just, just to have some sort of window or you'd have a window in one room and not the other room. Or your only outlook would be over the atrium that used to be in a large floor plate office building, which as you can imagine isn't going to give you much natural light, isn't going to give you a view of the outside world. Um, and I think it's quite detrimental to, to, to people living in them. So the the change that was introduced there is is a significant improvement and it was good to see actually uh, but the fact they introduced that change that means that there could have been other changes into the prior approval process for, for these existing winter development rights and, and there wasn't um things like the sort of location if you're located in the, in the middle of a business park or industrial estate are very hard to deal with under a, a permitted development because that kind of locational thing is is at the heart of a, a case-by-case planning decision-making. Um, so although it's a, a big problem, it, it'd be quite hard to, to deal with. But space standards actually could have been dealt with. There is a nationally described space standard uh, already published since, since 2015. Um, it's now a well-known standard. Uh, it, it could have been a requirement of any prior approval, so, so the decision-making process of permitted development, that they had to meet the, the national space standards. And I think that would have been a fairly straightforward standard that, that people would soon adapt to uh, but they didn't introduce that and that i think is very disappointing when, when you've got these tiny tiny um units uh, I'd, I'd call them units they're not really homes that, that are sort of 16 meters squared i'd often heard them referred to as, as like a small hotel room and um, clive betts mp uh, referred to them as, as the same size as, as the prime minister's limousine and imagine that that is your space um it's quite shocking actually and when you I mean that is it, the describing it as a limousine is is really is really quite unbelievable. We often think, oh well, it's um, you know, it's a student, it's somebody like that. So who who did you find were living in these in these homes that were the size of a limousine? Um, so this this didn't have such a detailed look um through through the report as uh, the sort of objective standards of, of the housing. It, it's it's a more difficult area to to research uh, actually, but. From this report, from a previous report that we did through the RSCS that was published in 2018, with some work in between that I've done with the TCPA, 
the, the poorest quality housing uh, is often used for, for temporary uh, housing waiting list um, residents. Um, and I think there's some quite well-known developments in, in Harlow, uh, but also actually in other new towns like, like Crawley um, and other places across the country uh, where they've been used for, for temporary housing um, residents who, who have very little choice uh, at all. Um, and when we're talking about temporary housing, just because it's such a an innocuous term yes. what what kind of what, what kind of people um are we describing and what situations might they be in to end up in that accommodation um yes yeah, so, so people in housing uh, need uh who who have um registered with their local authority um a, a lot increasingly of people perhaps where they've been um things like no fault evictions uh, from the private rental sector uh, they can also have been uh, family breakdown or, or, or other uh, sort of difficult personal uh, circumstances um, that have led them to, to, to be in sisters uh, in housing need by, by the local authority. Um, and by temporary, so sometimes it can involve living in, in uh, some of these conversions for, for years, uh, actually. Uh, and what, it can... you, what you described sounds like that could be anyone. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. And, and I think it's um, all too easy to sort of uh, think of, of, of them as different. It's not, it's, it's not me. It's not people I, I, I know. Perhaps if if you're a prosperous uh, sort of middle class professional, but actually through through no fault of your own, all kinds of circumstances can happen in your life that that uh, then lead you to to be in these uh, dire housing need. So, when you um describe the kind of size of of a limousine or a flat how does that compare to a, a studio flat or the smallest flat allowed under permitted development i mean not under development i should say when you describe um yes. a, a flat i'll try that again okay when you describe a permitted development flat that's the size of a limousine how would that compare to the smallest flat that is allowed under the national space standards yeah, so so the smallest under a, a national space standard would be thirty-seven um, meters squared. Um, so that's that's including everything. That's including a shower room at thirty-seven meters squared, um, an area to to prepare your food, and and obviously a sort of living space. So thirty-seven meters squared is not actually in itself massively generous, but it's yeah it's sufficient where you'd have a, a bed, um, perhaps a, a sort of sofa uh, area. Uh, and a small sort of food preparation area and, and um, shower room. What we have with permitted development isn't actually a, a minimum. So one of the interesting things is um, in a lot of European countries, it's a building regulations issue. There's there's a fixed standard. You can't go beneath this standard for, for dwellings. We don't have that in England. Um, and there have been some cases, interestingly, with permitted development that have gone to, to planning inspectors. So there were some buildings in um, Hounslow where the, the local authority tried to refuse them and said, uh, I think in one case, it's about 22 metres squared. Uh, unit wasn't uh, a dwelling house, uh, which is the test. Uh, but the inspector said, well, there's, there's no definition. That this place actually had beds that flipped down off the wall. Um, it's it's had a, a sink and a little counter to prepare food, and it had a toilet and a shower. Um, and, and so they said, well, it does meet our, our only tests for being a dwelling. Um, so although not in our study, we 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 I think saw saw the smallest was twelve meters squared. I've, I've heard of a nine meter squared um, box room 
uh, that, that's come through through committee development uh, before uh, now. When I'm trying to picture, I want to make sure everyone understands that, uh, 30, that 37 uh, square meters. Do we have somebody that kind of a, 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 a hotel suite, or is it a, a grand master bedroom? How big is how big is that, or is that kind of a, um, a Victorian house living room, or something like that? Um, uh, yeah, a, 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 a grand master bedroom uh, in, a, in a very nice hotel. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you're thinking sort of six meters squared by, by by six meters squared, with a bit carved off uh, for for a bathroom. But certainly seems habitable. I mean, not palatial, but habitable. Yes, yeah, it's it's the sort of size where you would have somewhere you sleep. You would, um, you know, definitely have somewhere separate. Uh, might be within the same room, but you'd have a separate area uh, where you could relax, uh, eat, uh, welcome guests. Um, so it's it, yeah. If you can imagine a sort of five-star hotel room where where you might have uh, some seating, a small table, as well as the the big double bed, uh, it's that sort of standard. So what you basically are saying through the report and what you're kind of saying here, what I'm hearing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is okay. The standard of the the cladding and the accommodation, the insulation, etc., the kind of build-up of it is is not uncomparable to other stuff being built, but really we need to address the daylight issue which they had and the and the standard of the, the space and also which i think we'll come to is the kind of outdoor provision um or amenity space as people call it but basically you know having somewhere to to put your bike or a bit of grass or something um and and then the government approach seems nonsensical they've had your report they've had the building Better Building Beautiful report, which also described uh, permitted developments as uh, effectively building the slums of the future. I mean, they were very strong um, speaking out against it. And it sounds relatively straightforward if you already have a national described uh, space standard that everyone has agreed to, to put that in either in building regs or to make it apply to permitted development. So what's going on? Why, why has, hasn't the government done it? Um. So my, my speculation would be it's, a, it's an obsession with um, the overall housing delivery numbers. Uh, so it's this view of the housing crisis is, is all about the supply uh, and just the supply of uh, units, the, the number of tens of thousands of units that are delivered. Uh, and permitted development has led to about 65,000 uh, housing units in England since uh, 2013, uh, when it was introduced for, for, for change of use to residential. Some of this would have happened anyway. Uh, it's not that nobody ever changed use of buildings before when you needed uh, planning permission, uh, but it is true that the, the rate is much higher than, than if they hadn't introduced this policy. So it's this notion that uh, when it's delivering tens of thousands of extra housing units, so what's not to like? What's not to like is, is the appalling quality uh, that, that people come to have to live in and, and the consequences uh, of that. But it's a sort of ideological uh, position, really. Um, it's this one where um, there's a view that the, the, the housing crisis is uh, solved by the private sector alone. Uh, and so we need to do everything to try and uh, increase the amount of housing the market brings forward. Uh, so that's uh, allowing lower standards, uh, allowing higher profitability. Um, and it sort of overlooks other aspects of, of uh, the housing crisis, such as affordability, such as location, uh, such as a differentiated picture uh, across the country. 
we're in the middle of a global pandemic and so much about our health and well-being is in the public eye now we've got this new um you know obesity uh awareness we've got kind of the push for more cycling the push for um you know for there's been a lot of writing about mental health what do you think the impact of living in these places are and and, and do you see a disconnect between this drive for greater um healthy cities and uh, and what's being built or converted i should say yeah uh, absolutely um not every single permitted development conversion is 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 bad quality i should say to to be fair but i would actually say a majority uh, are uh, that we saw um and we've we've mentioned space standards um the other thing that that we've mentioned briefly is is amenity spaces it gets called or, or access to outdoor space and and there's studies that go back a long way that that show the, the effects that having adequate outdoor space even if it's just a large balcony um that can have on our well-being um just a chance to if you like to to, to get some fresh air uh, right by uh, your house and and that's not possible under so many permitted development units i think it was a Three and a half percent of of the uh, schemes we saw of uh, over three thousand units had had that. I mean, it's, it's a tiny uh, portion, and it's something that quite. So, had any outdoor space, or had a private um, outdoor space? Um, well, we we measured in private, but um, actually, there was very rarely any uh, at all, uh, even shared. So, uh, it's very rare to get anything like a, a communal roof terrace or, or a garden. Um, often so what you've got is basically a, 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 a piece of asphalt and then you go into your tiny yeah, accommodation. Exactly that. The, 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 you know, think of old office buildings. Um, you know, they'll often have a, an asphalt car park that, that goes directly out onto the street and, and that's probably been left just as it was when, it, when these uh, blocks have been converted. It um, sounds incredibly grim. What's happening outside and around these buildings? And what is the, I mean, are they invisible in the city or do they have an impact on the wider place um, as soon as this office becomes um, full of homes? And how does that kind of connect into um, or relate uh, to transport networks, I mean, to schools? I'm, I'm kind of picturing this out of town industrial complex and thinking, where do the kids go to school? Where do, how do people get into town um you know and also and then likewise i guess if you're in the middle of a of an office complex in a in a downtown place what are some of the considerations and the issues what is what is what happens outside that front door yeah it's it's a really interesting um point i mean it's it's a sort of anti-planning it's it's not going to be good place making uh, at all um and the sort of level of access to services is incidental to where it was uh, and what was there before uh, the, the conversion uh, happened. Um, so yes, there are examples that are literally in the middle of business parks, industrial estates, uh, in peripheral locations uh, that are very far from uh, shops or, or, or services. Uh, a majority are within uh, urban locations. The sort of awareness of, of neighbours depends on the scale of the conversion. Smaller conversions perhaps if they, they were retail in particular tends to be sort of about five uh, units created the small office building of 10 units the, the immediate neighbors might not notice um, themselves if it's a big office block that's now 100 units though um, particularly if it's a poorer quality uh, conversion then, then the neighbors will know um, 
there'll be spill outs onto the street, particularly if you haven't got much space in your dwelling. You know, people have a desire to, to have access to outdoor space, so they just will, even if it's a car park, people will be playing in it, people will be uh, hanging about. The, the other interesting thing um, is that because it hasn't gone through the planning permission route, there isn't a means to, to get planning gain, um, so you won't be getting Section 106 contributions. In, in almost all cases, you won't get any uh, SIL contributions. And so these conversions aren't contributing to... Um, the, the local finances uh, the authority would use to support social and, and green infrastructure. And I think that's uh, quite important, particularly when you have large conversions, new residents are putting extra pressure on those existing services. So one that might mean just for somebody who might not understand what a section 106 or a, um, <laughs> a, a SIL uh, contribution is, if you were kind of building, let's say 300 units, what kind of expectations or what kind of money would you be giving to the council to support your development? Um, so it, it varies, um, particularly varies according to the sort of um, viability, the profitability of, of, of the scheme. And, and that's often linked to, to, to the local um, real estate market. Um, and it also depends if the authority wants to prioritise affordable housing, as they often do uh, now. Um, but in, in, in many cases, if, if you're building 100 units, the, the local authority might get about 30 of them uh, to be affordable housing. Under permitted development, none at all. Uh, we'll go to that. Um, after that, varies where we are in the country, but certainly we'd be looking at, at, at tens of thousands of pounds in most places, probably even a, a couple of hundred thousand pounds um, from, from a large development of that scale and would be able to go to, towards um, things like uh, local community facilities. Um, new So like uh, a GP practice expanding or um, putting an extra bus in to bring people somewhere that they might need to go? <laughs> yeah, those sort of improvements or community centre, um, that sort of community space um, or building a new park even. So I think it would be good to, uh, to, to hear more about what, what the local authorities um, said, because I know part of your research was to speak to them about the impact this was having in their area. I think it, you know, we kind of think of government as one big thing all moving together. Um, but it would be interesting to hear from you when you went to speak to them about the, the how they felt about um, a permitted development and what it was doing to uh, their ability to effectively uh, look after their their areas. Yeah, there, there was, in general, uh, a great degree of unhappiness uh, everywhere uh, and a feeling that this removed their ability to, to do meaningful placemaking um, and removed you know, a, a key lever of, of management uh, in, in the built environment. So planners, uh, local councillors as well, uh, everywhere uh, were unhappy with, with permitted development. Did but you find were... anyone who was so-so or was everybody pretty much unanimous? Um, on the planner politician front, pretty much everyone was opposed. Um, I think there was a, a couple of planners in, in, in some places where they'd had some vacant sort of 70s office buildings which which were now sort of student accommodation in the city center and they sort of felt they were okay and, and they would didn't mind them being converted but uh, even they had concerns about other schemes in their area so we didn't find anyone from the planning or, or, or local councillor types who were supportive 
Obviously, developers, uh, on the other hand, those particularly SME developers who, who do do these sort of conversions, that they, they were fans uh, of it. So it's um, been very profitable, I suggest, that suggests. Yeah, I, in many cases, and there, there was some evidence from, from those we spoke to of, of uh, profitability, certainly. Um, the fact you're not having to provide the affordable housing or, or, or make these sort of planning contributions uh, inevitably gives you a good start towards uh, profitability. One of the things that I've been reading about um, is about a lot of the, we talked about how a lot of the people who are, are living in these uh, places are in temporary accommodation. And one of the things that I've um, been reading about is how other local authorities are actually sending um, people with housing need into these boroughs that have a lot of uh, permitted development rights and often leaving them there for more than two years so that they then become the responsibility of the of the local borough. Is that something that people were concerned about that you were speaking to? And is there a sense that actually there's a there's a weird kind of displacement going on using this accommodation? Yes, um, the, the, there was that that one was more geographically in sort of the southeast of England. Um, wasn't a concern you tended to hear so, so much uh, in other parts of the country. But yes, Definitely in the southeast of England, there was this concern, um, and, and there definitely was plenty of examples of, of that. Um, and, and then you'd have other things like in, in one place we visited, the, there was a pretty poor, large conversion, and, and the developer had approached the local authority directly uh, and said, Do you want to use this for, for temporary housing? And they were you know, weighing it up, they, they had a large housing waiting list. They were also concerned that if they didn't use it, then another borough might use it. and, and, and uh, move tenants in uh, and the issues that, that can result from that from, from sort of displaced communities and extra pressure on on services so it is a very difficult um choice for for, for local authorities um to to make whether to to use this housing that is there and is is now a fact um in, in this way but certainly when it is used in this way um it can be quite detrimental and there's some quite interesting sort of investigative journalism that actually is, is given a real insight into the quality of life for, for these tenants um, in a way that is perhaps, you know, a bit brings it a bit more to, to life than, than, than some of our more academic reports. Well, it's been very difficult. I know for the documentary um, filmmaker who made a film for us, but also other journalists I've spoken to, it's very difficult to gain access into these buildings. The developers don't really want you to go in and they don't really want you to capture. Um, but some of the residents do want to tell their stories and do want people to understand the conditions in which they're, they're living. And in fact, um, our filmmaker went inside at um, Terminus House. And the resident there really wanted people to see that her and her two children and the, you know, the, the size of the space that they were living in um, and the level of noise they were um, dealing with, the kind of uh, issues um, that they were facing. Um, and I think, I think that, that raised some other questions kind of looking into these spaces. I mean, are there concerns in the wake of Grenfell about the safety of, these buildings as accommodation and is that something that you noticed and is there is there any fear of the just the number of people and the escape routes I mean it's very different to have kitchens uh, instead of offices lots of kitchens <laughs> kitchenettes I guess in your in the room that you're sleeping in a building that has a lot of people in it that may not have the same level of escape routes are these places safe I guess is what I'm trying to say 
Yeah, and and um, I mean, I saw saw your film on, on Terminus House, and it was um, I, I felt very impactful. Um, there are concerns that the official line from from the government would be that uh, these units all have to these conversions all have to meet building regulations, uh, which includes uh, fire safety uh, provision. Uh, but um, I think there's room for concern in a couple of ways. One is that those sort of regulations, and I think this is something that's coming out of, of, of Grenfell, aren't always uh, perfect uh, themselves. Uh, so through the RICS uh, report that we did in 2018, um, we, we looked at a lot of conversions in Croydon, uh, where, where I live. Um, and there are a couple of buildings that under officers, uh, building regs say you have to have two fire uh, escapes, two uh, sets of stairs. But for, for residential, you only have to have one. And in both those cases, the developers during the conversion took out the second uh, staircase to, to put in extra flats, which I just find mind-boggling. Why, why would you take that out? Why, why not just, just leave it? Um, and they'd say, yeah, they put in sprinklers and, and, and so on. But it just shows to me that the, the, I think the, the standard's quite low uh, for, for, for residential accommodation. The other concern is... is ones that, yes, they should meet the, the building regulations, but do they? Um, so if you can imagine the, the very first uh, site visit we did when I was doing the, the RICS published research, um, went out with my colleagues to, to a, a conversion in Camden. Um, we're looking at the outside of the building because we, we usually just did the site visits outside. You can't get into most of them. Uh, but the owner happened to be there and he saw us looking at the building, came out, asked us what we were doing. We, we said we're interested in, in this. Um, and I'd got the floor plan submitted to the council in front of me, which showed six units. And he said, oh, yeah, I've got nine flats in here. Um, and I sort of said, well, there's, there's six here. Uh, and he said, well, we managed when we did, you know, actually physically did the conversion to get some additional ones in. Um, there's others that we found where there weren't any floor plans. So proper floor plans are, are a more recent requirement. Um, so there's a few years from 2019 on where, where lots of them don't actually even have proper floor plans uh, submitted. So I, I question how much anyone really knows what's in these blocks. Um, and unfortunately, I think under austerity, the, the capacity to, to proactively go out and do enforcement uh, work on, on things like building regulations is, is quite slim. Uh, so an, another example, uh, in, in, in Croydon, again, looking at the outside of the building, and, and one of the residents there did invite me in um, and said, come in. And, and basically, the, the developer had put um, plywood partitions uh, in the middle of a, a large office building to, to, to make the flats. Uh, and then when I tried to get out of the building, uh, I found I was locked in because you could only open the front door with a key, uh, which I didn't have. <laughs> Uh, so I had to wait for someone to come in to get out. So, I mean, I was very alarmed at that one. And I, I contacted the council and, and the London Fire Brigade, who, who then did actually take enforcement action because it wasn't meeting the requirements. But that's one that I happened to get in because by chance I was invited in by, by a resident. It's just made me concerned that there could be other examples like that. Um, I think the more we open up a, a sort of deregulated space where you know, under permitted development, you, you might not even notify the council that you've started or co uh, completed your, your works. Um, it just raises a lot of concerns. And I, I think um, we are right to, to mention things like, like Grenfell. Um, when we have such large uh, office to residential conversions that, that could uh, provide accommodation that, that has safety concerns. It's, it's, it's unbelievably uh, shocking. <laughs> I find it really upsetting. Um, I think the, the thing that um, I want to pin back to is that 
um, this, this point about do they meet the standards? Because uh, in that process of, of making these conversions, you hire a private, um, you know, building uh, control inspector who comes and, you know, signs it off effectively um, and uh, submits some paperwork to the council, if I understand correctly, about, you know, and, and actually there isn't really an independent, Oh, I mean, they're supposed to be independent, clearly, but there isn't kind of an independent local authority or planner or someone or going around and saying, is this safe? Whereas if you were building these projects from new, you would have to talk to the fire um, brigade. You would have to be, you know, kind of going through from first principles to actually have some kind of um, to make the the case that this was going to be a safe place for people to live. So there's a lot of troubling um narratives here so the space standards is only part of the story then because you still have to make sure this place is safe um and what what are your i mean when we talk about your recommendations um what would you like to see what would you have liked to have seen the government change um yeah i mean (laughs) Not that I expected, but if it was liked, I'd, I wouldn't have things that create new housing going through permitted development. So I, I, I think our planning system, um, you know, it's often just presented as, as this barrier uh, to, to building, to, to development, but it's actually a, a proper process of scrutiny. Uh, it allows democratic engagement um, through communities to, to, to have a say in, in changing the built environment. It allows professional planners uh, the chance to, to look in detail uh, at a proposed scheme in, in all elements of its principle and its design. And, and I think that's actually a process that, that on the whole is very beneficial um, and saves us from a, a lot of potential harm uh, that can affect people's uh, everyday lives. So personally, I, I think they should go to, to back to being planning permission. Um, They're... Were conversions before 2013, before the, the permitted development deregulation came in, the, um, you know, with thousands a year, uh, actually, across England. Um, and I've been to uh, Rotterdam, uh, for example, where uh, the, the Dutch government approached the issue in a different way. That They said, yeah, we've got lots of vacant offices, we'd like them to be converted to housing. Uh, but rather than sort of deregulating their planning system, they, they just took a more proactive approach of engaging developers, engaging housing associations getting local authorities to identify which uh, sort of office buildings they'd like to retain as offices, which they could vision as being converted to other uses. Uh, They produce best practice toolkits to to kind of encourage developers to go into this space. So more proactive uh, sort of approach, but has achieved the same uh, end result of an increase in in conversions and housing um, created through through converting uh, old office buildings. So if we'd done that uh, in, in England, I think we could have seen an upswing in these conversions while still having the, the sort of minimum standards and, and the, the process of, of a planning commission. You, you know, you teach planning and um, you must have um, a kind of timeline of, of British planning in your head <laughs> about um about that that journey how it how it's changed how it became important and 
uh, you know, when, when you describe these places, I, I think about, you know, slum clearances and the clearing of tenement buildings and, you know, this, this real um, look at uh, places in the city that were um, full of disease and deprivation uh, and this conscious decision to say, you know, we're not, we're not going to, to continue in this way. And I think um, planning and architecture has been um, maligned for getting lots of things wrong, <laughs> I think, in its bid to make things better. Um, but this doesn't feel like a bid to make things better. So if you were to tell that, that simplified story, you know, from, from some clearance to where we are today, where are we right now? What are we doing? We're going back to um, the Victorian laissez-faire period. Uh, so absolutely, the sort of timeline of, of, of planning when we describe it would often start in, in the Victorian era. Um, my late colleague, uh, Peter Hall, uh, sort of wrote about the city of the dreadful night when uh, we had industrialization uh, in Britain. We didn't have uh, planning. We, we really didn't have much control at all. And that's when you've got really dreadful living conditions back to back. Uh, terraces uh, and uh, actually the spread of disease uh, and it was the you know the spread of disease uh, as well as um, various concerns about people's morals uh, that, that first led uh, to housing campaigns to, to uh, the planning movement to ideas about garden cities uh, etc um, and this is obviously taking a, a slightly different form but uh, I think it mirrors that we, we go back to an increasingly um, unmanaged, uh, uncontrolled uh, market, and we, we leave it to the market entirely. And through that, it's, it's at the whim of, of developers. And yes, we get some conversions, which are very nice, actually, uh, and are very high quality, um, because the, those developers uh, think about their reputation or, or think it's more profitable to, to deliver high quality. But unfortunately, a larger number uh, don't uh, make those calculations and instead think the more units you can cram in, um, the, the more profitability you can make, and we sort of take the money and, and, and run. Um, so it's it's just a, a retreat away from the notions of, of planning serving some sort of higher purpose of people's health, people's well-being, uh, intervening to create better quality environments. To, to return to the, the laissez-faire, let's let's leave it to the market and, and see what happens. How have we forgotten uh, the lessons that that we learned through the spread of? Um, disease and and through that kind of mass migration to the city which led to these these slums that that there was then very a conscious decision to to prevent happening um through through planning and through better infrastructure and um and and a real strong focus on it what's what's happened to erode that trust in in planning and you know to kind of um make us uh land with a bump back where we started um i think unfortunately planning's sort of become um linked to to notions of of, of the welfare state i, I say unfortunately I, I mean rightly so it is a, a key part of our welfare state but when you have perhaps an ideological drive against the sort of post-war uh, social democratic state then you, you see a sort of drive against uh, planning because it just becomes linked as uh, the state intervening and, and you know, people even described it as sort of Soviet rationing of land, um, which is a laughable comparison, I think, but fits uh, the sort of uh, ideology. Equally, of course, 
you know, planning architects um, have, have been associated with perhaps some development, particularly sort of public housing from the 60s and 70s, uh, which wasn't always of, of well-intentioned, but wasn't always of, of the highest quality. Um, and so some of the things that have been built, of course, then uh, uh, sort of feed into this, well, the, you know, the planner's expertise is, is, is to be doubted. Uh, what we never see, of course, is, is the harmful things that planning has prevented, uh, usually. Um, so it's, it's partly the, the sort of timing and nature of planning is really a part of our post-war welfare state and, and you know, the, the move in, in recent decades against it and a, a move against sort of state regulation and, and the notion of, of the state having a role to play uh, in these issues. I, I often think um, the, the most common things I hear about planning are um, from homeowners who are like, well, I own it. Why can't I just do what I like? Why do I have to ask for permission to, you know, make my kitchen nicer? Um, and this kind of um, landowner uh, mentality where it's like, it's my bit of kingdom. Why, why do I need to go to you? Um, do you think as we transition to a nation of renters that we might start to feel that we need someone to be looking after our interest in the way that our places are planned? Um, yeah, I think that's very interesting. There's always a, a bit of a dichotomy with, with homeowners that perhaps... Um, what what can seem like sort of petty restrictions for for your own home can be frustrating, uh, but equally uh, you often have a, a bit of an interest in what's going on around your house, even if it's just a, a, a I'll say selfish, perhaps understandable concern about property value because so much of our wealth in this country is linked to that. Uh, so so you know people on the one hand who might be frustrated about an extension they can't build on their house, often very concerned about what's going to happen across the road uh, from them. Um, and actually like the planning system because of the ability to at least have a say or try to have a say uh, in that. Um, but yes, as, as we increasingly perhaps become a, a nation of renters, the, there is a notion of, of um, an investment in, in other people, perhaps um, trying to ensure some, some reasonable minimum standards in, in the built environment. Um, it's very interesting to, to, to look at other countries. Yes, they have slightly different uh, planning systems in, in places like Germany, but um, there is a very proactive rate, uh, role usually for the local state, uh, actually in, in delivering development and ensuring really high quality uh, design. And, and that is a nation with a large number of renters. And this whole conversation about the size of flats, whether there's daylight or not, I often hear this um, idea uh that well if someone chooses to live there that's that's their business if someone chooses um a, a flat um because it, it's a pieter or it's easier it's well located or um you, you know what do you what do you say to those those comments about um about it, it, it the, which are really supporting that idea that the market will um supply and and the consumer will choose yeah, I know I've heard that a lot. It's a, it's a sort of free market fundamentalism, um, actually a sort of utopian uh, ideal in a different way, um, perhaps to my utopian ideal. Um, people don't have that, that degree of choice uh, often, um, and not just people who, who are on you know, housing waiting lists having to go into temporary housing. Uh, actually, a lot of renters um, have uh, very constrained choice uh, as to where they can go. 
Um, so you know, there's a temporary housing we talked about, but actually there's a bigger chunk in, in primitive element that's just uh, private rental that, that people are going to privately because they, they haven't got other places that they can afford uh, to live in, in the uh, areas they need to. Um, which then perhaps people take, say will, would bring us back to, to housing supply, but, but there's questions of different ways of, of meeting um, that need. So the, the, the free choice is, is not always there, and we're never going to have an entirely unconstrained um, ability to build uh, where you want, even, even if we carried on down this right route of further deregulating planning. Um, yeah, there, there's other constraints. Uh, there's other sort of environmental designations. There's, there's physical limits in some places. Uh, physical geography constrains how much we can build, uh, particularly perhaps in the southeast of England where, where there's a strong uh, economic demand for, for more housing, uh, usually. Uh, there's the thorny issue of the, the green belt, uh, which... Um, we could talk about for ages and I won't, but you know, there, there are other constraints on, on, on house building. That means we're never going to have this completely free market situation um, that, that, that people seem to uh, imply. Um, so I, I, it's not a choice in, in most cases to, to, to um, live in these conversions. It's, it's a lack of choice. Um, and that's why you see things like families in, in small one bedroom uh, studios uh, and so on that have been converted through permitted development. So we have a, a, a climate emergency. We've got an incredibly complex picture where we've got um, modes of transportation that needs to change. We've got the kind of desire um, to promote density because it, it seems like an efficient use of land in in um, in a climate uh, in terms of climate. Uh, but then we also have um, that idea of that, that old idea of the garden city, which did turn out to be much healthier <laughs> for the people who moved out of slums to go there. Um, and this idea that, you know, can we bring, can we bring the garden city into dense urban centers? Can we bring the garden city um, and not give up that density? Um, it's a complex picture. It sounds like we need planners to think this through for us. Uh, so what do we do now is the question. We've got a, a government that seems um, unresponsive to all the evidence, which they've actually gathered themselves and, and, and doesn't want to act. We've got a somewhat demoralized bunch of professionals who all actually care about this stuff and are not being supported in, in delivering this. Um, so we clearly need a rebel army to be formed to, to do something. But but is it is some is something in there almost a public service campaign so people understand what planners do and what planning is for? It's not there to just you know argue with your neighbor over a garden wall. Um, you know, do do you feel like um, people understand that planning comes from slum prevention? And it's about health and it's about well-being. Uh, it's about fires. It's about all of these um, really devastating, uh, impactful things that, that don't stay within the walls of, of the homes that you build, but, but spread out into the community. It's about school places and it's about transport. And it's about a good doctor surgery that has, you know, uh, enough capacity for you. So... Do you think we need a public service campaign? We need to educate people about what planners do. Do you think they do you think they appreciate the the link between between healthy living and planning? Yeah, I, I do think that there needs to be sort of 
more of a public service um, campaign. I, I don't think the connection is is made. I, I think it's become a, a pejorative term. You know, the, the, the planners as as sort of petty bureaucrats saying I can't have a dormer window or or, or something like that. Uh, and we also unfortunately get get very tied up um, in the, the, the rightly so because of the outputs, but in the, in the regulatory aspects. So you know, I find this when I teach my students, it can appear really dry, uh, and I know that as I'm talking through the, the you know, permitted development and, and, and uh, procedures of decision-making and planning. And I have to sort of try and remind them sometimes, but this is really important in terms of its outputs uh, and its implications for, for, for everyone in society and, and for our environment. And so I think people are perhaps um, tied up in the minutiae sometimes without seeing the, that, that sort of important bigger picture. Um, and I think perhaps because we, we had while not perfect, a, a reasonable planning system for, for, for so many people perhaps lost sight of, of some of the really important foundational principles uh, with issues like uh, people's you know, everyday health uh, and well-being that can come from really, really poor development. And, and it's almost like there, there needs to be a, a revision of, of the basic principles and the basic purpose and the, the notion of why we have planning. Because maybe bring that bring those public health professionals more deeply into into plan, get them to requalify as planners. Yeah, I mean, there's some uh, interesting work that the uh, Public Health England, uh, for example, are, are doing. They're becoming much more interested in in planning, and it's linked to things like obesity, um, air pollution, um, and uh, air quality, and, and the implications of that uh, on our health uh, and the implications of poor quality housing uh, on people's health and the strain that actually then places uh, on the NHS. Um, so I know that there is a growing awareness. Um, people like the, the TCPA have done some really great stuff about um, healthy cities, uh, actually. So I think there is, uh, the you know, the start of a growing awareness. And this, uh, I, I mean, I suppose COVID has kind of helped to hopefully accelerate that thinking if, if um if, if under tragic circumstances. When you um, did your study, you mentioned social deprivation um, indexes of the areas you found these places. So do you see, um, do, do you see similarities in the geographical locations or the makeup of the people in the places where these um, buildings are being converted? Um, I mean, they tend to be uh, just because of the stock of what's there first in, in the urban areas uh, anyway, uh, which of course tend, tend to have more diverse populations in, in England. Um, yeah, the, the, there's interesting that although the vast majority and it didn't meet space standards, only 22% did, the, the sort of compliance of space standards did vary uh, between local authorities. Um, there was a couple of, sort of drivers of that. If you had lots of large 60s, 70s office buildings which were vacant, Wherever you were in the country, you'd see lots of small conversions crammed in. Um, but beyond that, there was a link to deprivation. So it's the more deprived an area, the, the smaller the units you saw. Um, so it wasn't actually in, in you know, places like Camden or, or Richmond in, in London, where there's very high housing demand, but, but you know, house prices are very expensive. Actually, you tend to see larger units there in the permitted development conversions. Um, the tiny ones were often in in other places, um, Sandwell in the West Midlands, uh, for example. Um, so completely the, contrary to what someone who is talking about an architecture of choice might say, oh, it's a small place because it's in a prime location. But instead, you're like, it's a small place in a really bad location. Yes. Um, and this is very interesting because I've, I've heard just that argument that, that um, yeah, 
the, the, the smaller units would be where there's such demand in a really profitable market like like Richmond, um, but actually no opposite of that sort of architecture of, of choice um, because it comes down to the sort of developer's viability. Um, but what you're then doing is, is you're reinforcing the problems of that deprived neighborhood with you know, an extra quantum of really poor housing that's, that's then going to affect people who are unfortunately already uh, quite disadvantaged. Do you know anything um, about the spread of COVID in those places? Has anyone been looking at the spread of uh, coronavirus in crowded accommodation or even small unit accommodation? So I've uh, seen and I can't off the top of my head remember who it was by, uh, so unfortunately I can't give them credit, but I have seen uh, some very interesting um, studies, particularly graph linking overcrowding. So the uh, percentage of overcrowding in a local authority area compared to the, the rate of spread of COVID, and there was quite a strong correlation. Um, so our overcrowding standards uh, are different again um, to, to space standards, uh, but clearly if you've got a smaller dwelling to begin with, it's much more likely to, to, to be overcrowded. Um, the number of people are probably going to live there. Uh, and this is a disease that spreads through proximity. Um, so I don't think it's, it's too much of a stretch for imagination to see the link uh, there. So it's not about density per se. You, you can have very healthy environments at high density if, if you make provisions such as reasonable space standards, access to outdoor space and, and so on. But if you don't have that and people are spending a lot of time in uh, very small, uh, overcrowded dwellings, perhaps with really poor uh, ventilation, uh, then we can see the sort of spread of the disease. Um, and that's been also seen in, in places like Singapore, where you have migrant workers, unfortunately, having to live in these sort of dormitories. Um, and that's where they've had most of their COVID spread. And so, yeah, there definitely is a link. And, and actually, it was respiratory diseases, which was such a concern for the Victorians uh, when they started introducing uh, bylaws in the 1870s to try and improve our housing stock. Who do we look to uh, in the Victorian era as um, activists or uh, political movement to kind of spur on change how did that how did that change happen um i mean there's, there's obviously famously right at the end of that era you, you have ebenezer howard and, and and garden cities but before then you you had a lot of um campaigners particularly um uh, quakers um quaker industrialists actually who, who through perhaps a sort of um self-motivation wanted their workers to be healthier and so started uh, building the model villages, uh, so the, the Port Sunlights and the Bournevilles uh, of this world, um, and, and very you know, readily demonstrated through actually doing it, the, the link between the physical environment, the quality of the housing, uh, and people's health. Uh, and that really spurned on um, interest in, in Parliament. Um, people like Gladstone and, and uh, others were, were actually very interested in, in the quality of housing and the link to public health. So it was the public health that really pushed uh, pushed the buttons. So there's some hope that maybe this crisis we could use to to bring home a new message. Given that the just the quality, the poor quality of the housing doesn't seem to be cutting through. Yeah, because public health um, affects everyone. So, so particularly when you have an infectious disease, uh, it affects uh, potentially everyone in society rather than just uh, a particular cohort. Um, so I think in some times, unfortunately, there can be a sort of out of sight, out of mind attitude um, with 
people who live in poor quality housing, you, you, you might not know them, you might not know anyone who lives in, in such poor quality housing. So unfortunately for some people, it's just out of their mind, but actually uh, things like the spread of infectious disease are in everyone's uh, mind. So yeah, but potentially that, that does give us an opportunity to, to think a bit more about the importance of, of good quality housing for everyone. So I, um, I just want to thank you very much for talking to us today about this. I think it's uh, incredibly frustrating to read your report and <laughs> to see um, PDR being expanded to kind of retail and to these units up ahead and not enough change coming through. Um, so I guess we just keep raising awareness about it. We talk about why planning is good and <laughs> we hope for, for change to come. Yeah, no, that... Thanks, Christine. It's great to talk about it. I, th I think that's all we can do. We, we, we can keep producing evidence. Uh, we can keep making the arguments um, and, and say why good planning matters uh, for all of us uh, and just hope that uh, eventually the message starts to get through where, where it matters. Ben, can you give me a timeline here? How long did it take for the Victorians to, to get <laughs> planning on the agenda? <laughs> I mean, a lot of the sort of um, Chadwick stuff was in the 1840s, uh, and then really the first uh, sort of controls on housing, bylaw bi housing was 1875. So, um, yeah, they had a 30-year journey even within the Victorian period to, to properly make the, the, the case, and then that carried on with public housing not really being till after World War I. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a thing of decades to, to, to unfortunately keep making the case. Um, but within that, you, you can always have the influence, even if you don't influence national government, um, you know, th there's others. It's always a coalition between local government, between developers who do want to do really good quality things um, and other activists and communities. So, you know, we can influence in, in, in many ways, even if um, the particular national government of, of the day isn't so open. Now that this is expanding to retail units and there's fear around the high streets, do you have any advice to those um, local authorities or uh, you know, active campaigners, citizens or designers? Should they be trying to spot areas of their um, uh, neighborhood that they want to try to protect from uh, PDR? Um, what, what should they be doing? Yeah, the, the interesting thing that, that there is an ability to have um, some local control through what's called an Article 4 direction, so that removes the permitted development rights. Um, it's subject to ministerial sign-off, so if you tried to remove all of them across your whole borough or district, uh, it's not going to happen, and there's been cases where that's refused. But if it's a very targeted uh, evidence-based intervention for a particular area where, where you want to stop um, some types of conversions and you can produce some evidence to justify it, um, then... You know, th this has happened, and there's about 60 uh, examples of these Article 4 directions. So that's that's in the power of the local authorities. Um, that's something they can do. Uh, I think sort of community groups can help in, in, in terms of collating evidence. Um, equally, if, if the conversion's gone ahead, but it creates somewhere that's not fit to live, uh, there are housing enforcement powers. So outside planning, but if we start looking at environmental health and we start looking at um, the, the, the sort of housing, health and safety rating, and, and the powers that local authorities have there. If you're aware of somewhere that's been created that's unfit to live in, uh, then there's a duty to, to sort of take enforcement action through those routes. Uh, so there are other things in the toolkit. Um, and fire, can you report it to the to your fire authority? I mean, how do you do that? Did you just call the fire brigade and say, I'm worried that this building's not safe? Or 
Um, yes, I, I don't know if there's a better way of, of, of doing it because it's, it's the sort of margins of my area of expertise. But in my case, I, I literally emailed the London Fire Brigade and said, <laughs> um, giving detail as to exactly what the concerns were. And they, to be fair, they got back to me within 24 hours. Um, so I think if you, as long as you can provide you know, some detail as to exactly what, what you think the problem is, um, then, then hopefully they would take action. E- equally, of course, the, the local authority uh, building control team should should uh, still be able to, to assist. So local building control, your fire department, and then maybe write to your MP if you're worried about your high street or you know something in your area that you think would be inappropriate for conversion, you can maybe highlight that, say, um, you know, have you considered protecting this? Uh, or I guess your local councillor or your local... It's- yeah, if, if, if you wanted to try and hopefully they could do an Article 4 conversion, that's something your local councillors, um, contacting them, contacting local planners uh, is best. Um, MPs, uh, I think, are worth raising uh, the issue with. Um, ultimately, I think we're only going to get change at, at the national level through Parliament. Uh, so I think parliamentary scrutiny has is, is, is already led to things like our report being commissioned. Um, which, yeah, all right, it, it led to, to natural light, which is better than if it hadn't happened, I think. Um, and so, particularly MPs, I think from across the political spectrum, are, are usually very interested in things actually in their constituency. And if, if, if you can show it's, it's a real issue, then hopefully, eventually, if enough people bring attention to this, then, then we might see some change. And you would say, you know, don't just ask for national space standards to apply, ask for it to just go through planning and make your neighborhood, you know, greener and safer. And- and more, yeah, just put it back through planning. Yeah, I'd, I'd point out the, the, the space standards, but there's so much more than space standards. There's, there's the sort of, is it a suitable location? Is it contributing to, to placemaking? Um, is it, in some cases, uh, of course, the, the building doesn't have to be vacant. In some places, actually taken away needed uh, employment space. And there's lots of examples that we had of that too. too. So there's lots and lots of dimensions um, to this um, and that's why taking a rounded picture through through the proper planning process is so important. Well thanks so much uh, for sharing all this with us. You've given me some hope and some actions that we can do and uh, and to start on that um, I don't want to wait 30 years so I think we better get busy. <laughs> yeah I don't want to wait 30 years either so uh, the more that everyone can do to, to, to make the case for, for good quality housing, good quality planning and development uh, I think it really helps. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. This podcast has been brought to you by the developer. Produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.